Hello, welcome to the Voices Heard Lives Empowered podcast brought to you by Power. This month we are celebrating Black History Month and this year's theme is Proud to Be. In this episode we speak to Rihanna Ebanks-Bab, Andrea Sinquois and Darren Robinson-Scott who are power advocates and people of colour. We discuss their backgrounds, how their experiences have informed their personal and professional lives and what makes them proud to be who they are. For more information on Black History Month, please visit www.blackhistorymonth.org.uk. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us. It's great to finally sit down with everyone and have a good chat about Black History Month and how everyone is proud to be who they are. So uh, Rihanna, if I could start with you and just, could you just start us off with what your background is and your experiences growing up? Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Rihanna. I am Black Caribbean, both um, Jamaican and Bayesian. Uh, my background, so I grew up in Essex, in all honesty. I've, I've been a, an Essex girl, so to speak, and the majority of my life. I moved to East London in my early 20s. I've also got a son. I'm a mother to a, a young, budding graphic designer. Very, very lovely artwork, I must say. <laughs> so my background, work-wise, I've always kind of worked in health and social care, but also education. I worked with youth as well in communities at-risk children. Brilliant. And Darren, what's your sort of background in growing up? Ben. Okay, um, yeah, I'm from Birmingham, obviously. My background is Jamaican, so my family's from the Caribbean. I've kind of had one foot in the creative world and one foot in the, you know, the kind of corporate world. So I'm, I'm in the music industry with uh, one hat and the other side of me is... I studied psychology, uh, went to university um, in Luton, and never looked back to Birmingham. Then, yeah, I just kind of fell into advocacy, and I still have one foot in the music industry, uh, just to keep the creative juices flowing. And yeah, I have a gorgeous little boy as well, of mixed heritage, he's actually um, half Indian, and I still heavily influence him with the Jamaican culture, so every now and again, I'll, I'll cook him some nice jerk chicken and rice and peas and send him off the nursery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. That's really good. That Well, that just first of all, that I think that's quite interesting. So could I ask, were you born here or did you come over with your parents, Darren? I was actually born here. I was, I was born in Birmingham, Sorrento Hospital, but everyone around me was Jamaican. Everyone. So the, the culture is so embedded uh, in me, the music, the, the food, you know, everything. Growing up in Birmingham in the 80s, there, there was no, to be honest, yeah, there was no other influences. Everyone that I met who was black was from the Caribbean. It wasn't until I got to university that I actually met anyone who was from Africa, for instance. So um, it, may, it may be different for Londoners, but in, in Birmingham, the... the um, majority of black people are from the Caribbean, one of the Caribbean islands. There's very far and few people from African cultures, African countries. Um, I didn't really meet any in school or anything like that. So I honestly don't recall actually meeting anyone from like Ghana or 
university was a, a big eye-opener to me. And I, I learned so much about what it means to actually be black. Do you know what I mean? Could I bring in Andrea, if you want to explain a bit about your background? Well, I think I'm, I'm a bit older than both Yana and Darren. <laughs> so I think I'm, I may have a slightly uh, sort of different perspective. But yeah, Andrea, because um, my background is I've always kind of been in um, sort of community kind of positions in terms of jobs. So um, I've worked from, I'd say, not to 90. Um, I, I first worked on um, a special care baby unit within a hospital. Then I worked as in, in sort of nurseries. Then I went into youth work. So I was a detached youth worker um, in Tower Hamlets for a number of years. Um, and then I came into advocacy. So I've sort of spanned the ages in terms of, of work. I'd also say that, yeah, I've got three children, all of whom, you know, have done done good for themselves, I suppose. One, much like Darren, is uh, audio sort of music production. My other child actually works for NHS England, which is a bit funny considering the role that I do. And then I've got my youngest one who is a performer, so she works in musical theatre and is currently on tour. So, yeah, they're sort of all doing their thing. But I'm, again, from a Black Caribbean background. So my parents sort of migrated over from St Lucia and settled in East London. So I'm also from East London, and generally people always say that I've got a really broad East End accent, <laughs> so, <laughs> which I think I have. I have got, but sometimes I do. I do like to sound a bit posh, um, but it, that doesn't always work. The more I speak, generally, the more East End that comes out of me. <laughs> um, um, and I, but I'd sort of say where I grew up when I was younger was a really mixed bag, which I think was really fortunate. So I grew up in both, and I think when my sort of parents came over there was also a really heavy influence of um, Bangladeshi families that also moved or that was in the sort of on the estate where we we lived as as children so and also there was a also white sort of working class I suppose the predominant thing was that everybody was kind of working class but there was like black white and Asian in terms of where where I lived which you know, we've always said when I sort of meet people from even primary school, which we've done just before COVID, we all met up, um, which I think is quite rare that we kind of still have reunions and things like that. But we was just speaking about how much of a rich sort of culture we had as, as children. And we had a really kind of progressive primary school head teacher that had like an African steel pan, work, well, not steel pan, an African workshop coming to the school for a whole week and explore African culture and dancing wow. and cultures and all that. And I was in primary school, so this was, like, unheard of. But, yeah, it was just a really... I think I had a really fortunate childhood. Like, my my younger... Like, when they say they're your formative years, were really just... were just that, really formative. And I think is sort of tantamount to who I've become as an adult. It's interesting what you said about the working class thing. So mm. there was lots of different people from different cultures, but mm. 
the overriding thing were you all working class so did it feel like you were sort of all as one yeah definitely I mean my I suppose my best friend now who, who's, who's been my best friend since I was three years old now lives in Birmingham where Darren comes from um, and and she is half half white and half Asian and half Bangladeshi so yeah I just think you know also I think when you're younger there's you know colour I suppose it's like a non-issue you know it's it's just a non-event when you're sort of really young I think you know things only come into into sort of the realm of reality when I suppose something happens so so for me it wasn't until I was an adult really that I had I even had my first encounter of any form of racism and that was when I was 25 wheeling my baby and I'd moved to to Essex but before that even I think when I was in East London it was I was in a little sort of safe hub I felt like I was in a safe hub I had never actually I mean I'd seen obviously um things that had happened so I where I lived in East London was very close to Brick Lane which is now sort of the trendiest of trendiest places you could yeah. ever want to be in the middle of Shoreditch when I was younger I suppose as a, as a black person it's nowhere you wouldn't have frequented there it wasn't you, wouldn't, you would have gone there but you would have made sure that you was with other people because there was the Socialist Party at one end of Brick Lane and then there was the um, National Front Party at the other end of Brick Lane selling their papers and, you know, every Sunday, we've, I suppose you could almost guarantee that there was going to be some type of fight that would happen, which obviously nobody wanted to be in the middle of. But, you know, it was um, it definitely was not the place to be in the, in the 70s. Yeah, lots has changed from now to things, I'd sort of say now. It's a very, well, it's, it's very gentrified. I suppose area, but it's where everybody goes mm. and you know and wants to be. So it's it's a very different view in terms of when I was younger, how things have sort of changed so much. What about you, Rihanna? Was, did you have a, a lot of mixture of sort of different cultures growing up, or were they few? I was literally just sitting here thinking as well because even just listening to both Andrea and Darren, I started thinking about when I moved out of Essex into East London, that's probably where I found a lot more black people that weren't my family. Because in Essex, unless they're my family members, I didn't see any other black people. And that's just a true reflection that I'm really thinking of now. Because, yeah, it's very far and few that you'd find even like a black community in Essex, to be honest. So the most I would say is diverse, yeah, it's diverse to an extent, but very much white populated, Asian populated, kind of what Andrea said, a lot of the racism was accounted for whilst I was in Essex, compared to when I moved to East London, funny enough, in Bow, where Andrea was just talking about. <laughs> I lived there for nine years, ten years, um, had my son in East London, and very much a diverse community, but still very heavily populated with uh, Bangladeshi, um, individuals and communities there so but I found East London particularly Bow area you would find a lot of Somali families pockets of black communities particularly black African as well so yeah it's quite a range so to speak and it kind of resonated with what Darren said like 
like what I was saying before, the only people that I would come across in my immediate circle before moving out of Essex were my family. So they were all black Caribbean people. Mm. But yeah, very, very much, if I didn't move out of Essex, I don't think I would have had the richness that I've had throughout this whole time because I've, I've educated myself in East London as well. So even when I was in university, I came across all kinds of people from Spanish individuals to people from the American waters to some of my friends from Thailand uh, that are still in contact now, people from South Africa. And, you know, just understanding that there's so much diversity in people, so much richness in people. And if you stay in your safe little community circle, uh, you're not really going to find that sense of understanding others through yourself just by exploring. Even where I lived, I lived on a road, just a very, very long road. <laughs> I really wanted to grow up on a council estate because I used to travel to the oh. council estate to go see my friends. <laughs> I love those memories. I tell you, I, you know, even in terms of like, my, I grew up on a council estate, so, mm. and I, and my children haven't. Sort of mm. thing, and the I think just the sense of community that you get when you live on a council estate. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's, it's like, I'm not sure if it's the same now because I think it's a lot different now to make you know there's lots of other different elements now it's to when I was younger. When I was younger, everyone's front door was open. My upbringing was practically the same. Like I literally was out all the time, <laughs> just playing. But what I wanted I wanted to sort of bring the conversation to, which I find quite interesting, is you're all parents and what I want to know is how do you instill that sort of pride in their culture I mean I'm interested with Darren you know your child is did you say um half Indian half yeah Caribbean I'd like to know you know a bit more about how you balance that trying to help them become an individual but also making sure that they're aware of their culture and their heritage yeah um good question Ben I was going to say to be honest, that was something that I struggled with growing up, finding an identity that I could actually identify with. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was like, although my family was Jamaican, if all of my friends that I played with, you know, we were all born in the UK. So the, Jamaica as an island, it just, it just it kind of seemed like a fantasy paradise place. You know, it was way over there. I knew that it existed, but I couldn't really... I couldn't really relate to it as such because it wasn't real to me, if that makes sense. And when there was no black history taught in schools, and to be fair, I didn't care because I didn't feel I didn't feel any different. Like all of my friends were a mixed bunch. We all jumped on our BMXs after work, after school, sorry, and we had you know we had good times. Racism was not an issue at all. It's not something that we thought about. So to answer your question, it wasn't until Later on, secondary school, when I jumped on the buses and you saw those NF graffiti, and one day I kind of jumped on a bus and it was the wrong bus, and I saw green bomber jackets and cherry red Dr. Martins, and had to run for my life. You know, that those kind of moments stay with you forever, you know? And once it happens, once racism enters your mind and you're aware of it, it's never the same. So... Then I found myself going on a journey. I found myself going on a, a journey of trying to find out who I am, what my place is in the world, and what it means to be a black man in the UK. 
and it took me years to really understand what my role is, what my position is, what what my strength is, you know, because all the only influences that I had, which weren't many on t- on TV, like anytime we saw t- <laughs> we watched the TV, people would run around the TV if they saw a black person there because it was like a shock. Do you know what I mean? So th- you didn't have any like role models growing up on TV except for like I don't know Mr T on the A team, but you know really what? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like that's just a tough black guy. You know there was no positive role models. So it it took my it took me years to get where I am today. Traveling, speaking to people, going to Africa myself, going to Ghana, going to Sierra Leone, learning about what black people have actually contributed. And when you do that kind of research, you're actually blown away. You know, when you, when you find out that black people were, they invented the radiator, they invented um, the traffic light system, they invented calculators, the guitars, and clothes dryers, and the folding chair, and the lawnmower, and the mop, and like, you know, loads of stuff. You, you All of a sudden you think to yourself, wow, I'm not just a descendant of slaves. You know, there's a big, massive history that wasn't taught to me that I now need to educate myself on. And I'm so glad that I've gone through that journey, educated myself, and I I can honestly stand here now and say that I'm honestly proud. I'm proud to be black, you know, because before there was no reference that I could look at and say, I want to be like that guy. You know, there was nothing nothing at all so i can pass this down to my children now i can say to my son you know you know what son do you know that the richest man in the world was a black man mm, the, the, the richest man that's ever lived was mansa musa who, who bailed out europe you know if he was alive today he would be worth 400 billion you know that kind of stuff so hearing these type of stories and knowing your knowledge allows me to install a bit of confidence in my son to say you can do it as well your history is not just slavery because um there was a time where that's all i knew you know you watch programs such as roots and amistad and and, you know it kind of hurts me well not even kind of it hurts me to think that those people in those movies were my great 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 grandparents do you know and um, I thought that that's all there was. That's, that's, that, that was our story. We were slaves. But it took education and self-education because, it, like mm. I said, it wasn't, it wasn't taught to us. Yeah. Can I jump in there? Because what you're saying is so true. Because I think a lot of the time, particularly people that identify with blackness, um, and people that don't identify with blackness, there's a, a preconceived notion that people that do identify with blackness know everything about what it's like being black. And that's so, it's, it's such a misinformed notion. And I like what you said, the self-learning, it's a continuous journey because mm. even myself, like I would say my son is he's um, Caribbean, so he's got obviously myself, Bayesian and Jamaican, but also his dad is Nigerian. So that also has been an, a learning and unlearning for myself as well. What Caribbean tendencies I bring to 
my son and and to the table and what African tendencies he brings and how does this create one whole individual? You know, there's there's always been this whole thing of African versus Caribbean, but why not Africa and Caribbean? And that's something that um, amongst the blackness is very much um, still un, unexplored, misunderstood as well, but also just understanding that the rich heritage that you have within blackness, it doesn't just stem from like what Darren said, slavery. Um, we were people that were enslaved, but we were people before that enslavement. Um, and that is where the erasure and everything has happened because not knowing the lineage and not knowing even where to find this information or even where to start is probably one of the difficult processes that you have to hold the mirror up to yourself and say, okay, why don't I know this information? Am I even interested to go and find it? Um, if I am interested to go and find it, what can help me? Who can help me? And all that kind of stuff. And it just sets you off on a on a exploration. So, you know, you're able to, not only for yourself, but once you start learning this information and this knowledge, you can then pass it back on to your children or your, your cousins and your friends and your family. And, you know, and that is the same with not even just your own personal culture. That's with learning your culture you learn other cultures too because you know it's, it's not just black history it's just world history all of our histories are interlinked with each other and it doesn't just start and stop at slavery and i do think as well you know i think now especially the young lots are talking about our children and influences and how they're kind of informed but i think i suppose right now in this moment there's just so much positivity around being mm. a person of color or a black person and that there's not obviously there's the historical kind of people so like Frederick Douglass and all these sorts of people that you can sort of refer to in terms but even in things in terms of like Barack Obama I know that mm-hmm. it's like a very everyday term now but I just think even when he became president the first black like, it was just like oh my gosh it was mm-hmm. such a massive massive issue there's you know I suppose in terms of authors you know like I suppose like more relevant, not relevant, but everyday or sort of now authors like the Tony Morrison's, mm-hmm. I suppose you've got the James Baldwin's, but you've got artists like, I suppose, Beyonce and Jay-Z, and you've got mm-hmm. people that are doing good things like, um, I don't know, the creator of things like SBTV and Jamal mm-hmm. Edwards, so you kind of think these are all people here and now that mm-hmm. are kind of, maybe back when I was younger, there wasn't really a lot of people who you'd, you'd sort of have in terms of oh gosh they're doing this and they're somebody of colour. Would you say Andrea that children now or the, the next generation are finding it easier to be proud of their identities probably easier than you did or I mean how would you I compare that say, ex- them experiences? Yeah, I mean I suppose I would never say that I wasn't I think I came from a household that was a very proud household I think lots most people are, you know, in, in the main, I feel. But um, I suppose my household, I had quite a, a um, I don't think I had a unique upbringing, but all of my, my family are quite, so I've got a brother who's an installation artist who teaches at, who's taught at Harvard, who's taught in Germany, who's, you know, sort of influenced and is a, is a influencer in terms of British art. I kind of, feel that I've seen lots of different environments 
in terms of growing up. You know, we, we was never sort of limited as, as children um, to sort of um, to what we do or what we see or where we go or anything like that. And I think that's, I've sort of instilled that in, in my children, I suppose, even my daughter, who's in, she does musical theatre. Again, there's not maybe a lot of maybe black people in that industry, but that was her dream. That's what she wanted to do, and she's done it. And so it's kind of, but I think in terms of having people to see, I think they've always been there. I just feel that now everything's so much more out in the open for everybody. What I've noticed is that there's quite a lot of creativity and artistry associated with either yourself or your families. How would you say that your heritage or your, you know, your sort of background has influenced that side of things? For me, music has, music has been so essential to my life. Growing up in the 80s, Bob Marley was huge. I think that he was at his prime there. I think he died in 81, didn't he? Yeah, he died in 81. So reggae music was being spread all over the world. And the thing about reggae music is if you actually listen to some of the songs or some of the lyrics of the songs, should I say, they're actually telling some very deep stories. And that's how black people learn a lot of stuff. Because you've got to remember, there was no internet at that stage. So, you know, when Bob Marley done stuff like Redemption Song and he's talking, or, you know, songs like... Uh, by the rivers of Babylon and all these other songs that tell stories about what's happened in the past. That was our way of sending, having messages sent across the world to black people. So music is so important to me. And I feel that it also allows us to kind of vent and it opens doors and, you know, it, you know, it also allows us to, I don't know, kind of connect on a deeper level, you know? And, yeah, that's why I feel music is something that I, I just can't let it go. Even if I'm just sitting in my house, strumming my guitar, that gives me great pleasure. <laughs> it's funny you mention that, actually, because I, I was saying to myself the other day, although I don't do advocacy anymore, um, whenever going to meet a client, always in my head, I've got get up, stand up, stand up for your rights always in my head whenever I'm going to meet a client <laughs> um, and it's strange because it just like you said it's one of those universal connectors that even if you can't say how you're feeling and express it in your behavior and whatever it may be like having that ability to express or have someone relate the way that you feel through the power of music and, and the support that you offer other people through that power as well especially me I'm a, I'm a songwriter so I know that being able to inject emotion for people to feel and connect with the music is so important it's so so important the lyrics the, the beat the melody the, the pitch even like everything combined together to make one song is so important when it comes down to evoking certain emotions and like I said music is the universal connector of feelings healing emotions so yeah I definitely resonated with that one no, I feel, feel the same, although, odds with everyone else, I was always a soul girl, always have been, always will be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but music is, like, just so, so important. Music and art, I just suppose in terms of art, all of 
like my family are kind of good at art. So, you know, my, my younger brother has done art in a different way. He kind of has led his way to doing sort of more construction architecture type things. Yeah, and then my other brother's gone into sort of installation art. Yeah, I just think that we've never been told, as I said before, to sort of back away from anything that we wanted to do, and we didn't. So, you know, um, I think, you know, lots of people might have put blockers in terms of maybe you can't do this, and lots of people, when I was younger, you're told to get into a skilled job or to do something. Mm. Oh, no, you'll never be able to do that. Why don't you, you know, I don't know, just be a secretary instead or something like that. But I think we just come from a very kind of arty family and we were told to go reach for the stars and that's what we've done. That's what I've instilled in, in sort of my children yeah. as well mm. and it is about expression isn't it about expression of your experiences in terms of advocacy how do you feel that your experiences and who your and your identity helps you become an effective advocate i think part of the reason why i got into advocacy uh, for me personally i've come from a background where we don't talk about things <laughs> we don't talk about what's going on in our lives we don't talk about the ups we don't talk about the downs very much secretive it's like a secret society so to speak but a lot of the the things in my household i would even say part of my culture you don't talk about things so having to learn that coming into the world as a young individual learning how to speak up and speak out and just even express yourself that's how i got into music and songwriting was that was my way of expressing if i wasn't able to do it in the environments that was made for me to you know supposed to be authoritative in how i think and feel but i think for advocacy it allowed me to not only help someone else through their time of abolishing silencing but it was also my way of supporting myself to continue the practice of speaking up and speaking out because it was something that I had to learn. And with learning, you have to continuously do it. You have to continuously practice. And it's so liberating to be able to, one, express yourself, but two, teach someone else how to do it as well. That's why I got into advocacy, in all honesty, because aside from just the justice aspect of it, I'm very much a person that believes that everyone is deserving of a form of justice whatever way they see it but everyone has a right to speak what they feel and speak their minds and being able to support someone to gain those skills to then self-advocate is probably one of the best things that you can ever give to someone in my opinion yeah i just want to echo that Rihanna. i think um advocacy changed my life Honestly, it did because I've I've been in so many situations previously, um, you know, where I kind of felt disempowered or I couldn't have my voice heard. So when I came across advocacy and I really understood what the role was about, it kind of gave me, it kind of empowered me to empower someone else. If that made sense, so I I really took the the role seriously and I got so much satisfaction from. Um, just supporting people and a lot of the times it's not it's not that the person can't speak up for themselves or they 
um, they don't understand the process. Sometimes when, when they're going through whatever they're going through, they just need that little bit of support. Do you know what I mean? Just just to feel like, you know, someone's on their side, someone's listening, and that someone um, can guide them through the process. And, and um, for me, like I said, advocacy really has changed my life, definitely. And that's why I've been an advocate for like 13 years. You know, I love it. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I mean, I think with me, I think that I've always been an advocate. I just didn't know the proper name for it, you know, sort of. So I, I think as I've, I've also got a brother who has autism. And so I've, I kind of, or as a family, we sort of spoke up for him or supported him in what he wanted to do and sort of to get his voice heard and so that he went to... You know, he's on a, a high spectrum, so it was, you know, he can just go to the normal comprehensive school. He doesn't need to go to sort of a special school and everything. So it was kind of fighting for his rights from the get-go. And then I suppose when I'd done youth, it was, I was often working with people that were like youth offenders. So, you know, speaking up and and going through sort of some of the justice sort of systems with those young people. So I suppose when I became an advocate, I suppose I felt, gosh, this is this is what I've been doing, like, all along, in terms of, you know, most of, lots of us, I think it just gave me sort of clarity in terms of, like, I'm good at this, I'm good at listening. You know, everyone sort of says, like, Andrew, you're a really good listener. And everyone always says that I've got a really calm voice. <laughs> So that kind of usually sort of helps sort of level out situations where I suppose maybe people are in crisis or they're going through something really extraordinarily, you know, a really sort of a, a bad event. And hopefully I'm able to create some sort of calm in that conversations, in, in those conversations that happen, whether they're whether that's in a local sort of local resolution meeting where there's clinicians and, and people like that where people are really emotive, people are really emotional, you know and when, when people get sort of the the outcomes that they want from making making their complaint, that's always you know, a really, I suppose it's satisfying for me that they've come out with something from having made, made a complaint that's often a really sort of long-winded process, so recently I've had somebody that was basically discharged, well not discharged, sort of banned from the hospital that they were attending. But before they banned him, he was meant to get some splints, which he was unable to, to gain. Consequently, he then ended up in a wheelchair because he didn't have these splints to aid his walking. And through the sort of conversations and the sort of engagement that I had with the complaints and he he got his thing so actually only yesterday he sent me a, a email with yay on it and a picture of the splints that he gained and just sort of said you know and I sort of said I'm really really pleased that you know that you got these and he said I wouldn't have been able to do this without you and that kind of gives you enough a feeling of goodness that you know that this person's you know, made a, made a complaint. They've got kind of what they wanted to to get from from the process, and you know, it, it makes your makes your day sunny. 
what, if any, what advice would you have for someone, perhaps a person of colour, who is struggling with our, their identity and knowing their place and, and where they are in the world and who they are? What sort of advice would you give to that person just based on your experiences? I think it's about educating yourself. That was the thing for me and because I struggled with the, the identity because I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't class myself initially as Jamaican, you know, because like I said, I didn't really know much about the island. Well, I knew about the island, but I didn't, I hadn't, until you've gone there, you don't, you don't really know it until you've lived there for a bit or, you know, actually visited the place. You can, you know, then you can say, yeah, I'm Jamaican because you've, you've been there. But I, I didn't go to Jamaica until I was about 23. So, you know, th- throughout my whole life, I, I was told that I was Jamaican, but I'd never been there. You know, so um, it's about educating yourself and uh, obviously educating yourself on the history and the culture. And then slowly, you're, everything will just kind of fit into place. But then there's something else that I wanted to say real quick before Rihanna jumps in, because I know she's going to jump in. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say, advocacy has, has filled me with a sense of, of, of pride. Just the fact that initially I used to turn up to local resolution meetings looking like Idris with my suit on, feeling, you know, real good. I've got my theme music in my headphones before I go to my local resolution music and I'm local resolution meeting and I'm pumped, ready to go. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of things, a lot of the clients would, they'd be taken back by the fact that I'm black. Do you know what I mean? Especially some of the, my black clients, when I get there, it was almost like reassurance. They're like, wow. Mm. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? It was like, wow. Okay, go on, black brother. You're doing your thing. Do you know what I mean? And, you know, I would obviously go to a local resolution meeting fully informed of what uh, should be happening. I'm very confident in the process, supporting the client all the way. And and, one, and when we get out of the meeting, they're like, you know, we we done really good in there. Working as um, working under community advocacy, which is, you know, a lot of dealing with health, social care, housing, whatever it may be, just on the ground community stuff and doing um, Care Act advocacy, I find that the professionals sometimes would think you're the client. And it's like, okay, well, what makes you think that that's your own biases there? But second of all, why can't someone that looks like me be an advocate? What, is it because of my hair? Or is it because of my skin tone? The way that I speak? But at the end of the day, I'm here to do the job well for this person that is in need of the help so yeah i think it it really does give you a sense of pride when you know that you're in a space that is very it's a very niche subject advocacy for one but you know that you're a good advocate on top of that and you know that you can do it well and get a good outcome for that client that is definitely a sense of pride that i've had definitely and I, was, I suppose I was just going to say on, on top of that, I suppose, is that, you know, a lot of the sort of trajectory in terms of, I suppose, black people is that, you know, you kind of, you're potentially loud and you're potentially brash mm. and you're potentially harsh and all of these sort of perceptions that people have, which I think in terms of advocacy, a lot of people maybe shy away from or don't want to come into sort of get support from these services because they feel like maybe they shouldn't be or what what will that look like because they're sort of somebody of colour making a complaint and they don't want to sort of rock the boat 
sort of, mm. so to speak. And so again, as you say, when they do see somebody of colour as their advocate, you can almost see the heaviness lift from their, their shoulders, yes. like they're kind yeah. of thinking, oh, like, you yeah. know, hopefully somebody that gets it, because, you know, I suppose I've had complaints where people sort of say, like, you know, I feel that the reason this is happening to me because I'm a person of colour, because I'm black. You know, mm. you know, and so I think the reassurance then, if when they do see um, an advocate that is of colour or is black, that it just gives them that reassurance that they've got somebody in their corner that's mm. kind of supporting them, but also, you know, we know what we're talking about. I was going to say, I think for me, I kind of lean into my stereotype because, yeah, people would look at me and presume I'm loud and brash and, and all, all the the <laughs> loudness and yeah very much puff up your chest I, I lean into it because in all honesty as an advocate you're meant to be loud in 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 a time when everything is trying to be sidelined and that's the whole reason why you've been requested as an advocate is to help someone speak up so I'll lean into it in those kind of instances and I was listening to um, a TED talk yesterday and I've listen to it over and over again just to let it hit home with me about being comfortable with being uncomfortable and a lot of the time my presence can make people feel very uncomfortable because I can be very confident um, and, and very much stand on my own two feet and I will say it with my chest every single time but that's what you need to be an advocate to support someone through their issue because if and, and this is what she said her name's Lovey um, she said to be the person, to be the first domino to drop, you have to be the one to say that you're standing out from the crowd. You have to be the one to say that you're going to speak up in a world of silence. You have to be the one to be loud and to get things done. Otherwise, change is not going to affect and the dominoes after you will not follow suit. So I will lean into my stereotypes as much as I can, especially when it comes to advocacy. Uh, four years ago, I made the decision to grow my hair now it sounds silly, it sounds silly, but the way that people have treated me now that I've got dreadlocks compared to when my hair was cut low, it's completely, completely different. Mm -hmm. If I go on a train and my hair's down with my dreads out, no one's going to sit beside me. But I've made it my mission to break down certain stereotypes. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Especially when where dreadlocks are concerned. Mm -hmm. It's the same if you've got an afro. Back in the day, you you better believe you're not going to get the job if you go to a, 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 a you know like a job interview and you've got a big afro. It's not going to happen. You better go there with a low cut hair, a, a low cut hairstyle, and look you know sharp. That was what I was always told. So I think now what's happening is a lot of black people are just embracing their culture. We have hair that grows out towards the sun. It's just, that's just the way it grows. And, you know, a lot of people don't really understand that and still want to ask questions about your hair. And But I made a conscious decision to embrace my culture. My hair now is part of my identity. It means something to me. It's almost like, it's almost tribal, you know? And I love it. I love it. And I, I don't feel that it's um, unprofessional. I don't feel that it's uh, it, it changes me as a person in any way. I'm still Darren. I'm still the same guy. I've just got dreadlocks, you know. How would you talk about the pop, like pop culture, influencing people's pride in their culture? For example, films, 
music, art, fashion. I mean, I'm thinking of things like what's going on in Hollywood at the moment, increasing diversity, etc. How much of a role do you think that plays in people's pride in their culture? I think it plays a huge role in it, definitely. But growing up in the 80s, I used to have what we call a jerry curl. <laughs> I used to have like a, a, a curly perm. So I wanted to be like Michael Jackson. So I, I wanted to be like Michael Jackson. And that meant perming your hair, putting gel in it. And if you ever sat down at anyone's house, you, you're guaranteed to be leaving like a soggy patch. <laughs> on their sofas when you, when you when you get up do you know what I mean it was like your hair was wet literally wet so yeah the, the pop culture artists musicians anyone that you feel that you could you could identify with you kind of want it to be like that so I, I'm assuming it's the same for the ladies if when they see Beyonce with the long blonde weaves then <laughs> you know uh, at that time maybe I think it's early 90s maybe a lot of ladies chose to do the weave thing simply because it was um, you know Beyonce was doing it do you know what I mean but now you're you're getting more natural artists you know so you, you've got like the Lauren Hills you've got Indian India Irie is her name yeah Indian Irie uh, loads of loads of um, positive black role models that are embracing their hair and I think it's important that we do that Michaela Cole as an example if you look at her previous bodies of work from chewing gum to even her most recent one which she won the award for you see the transition in process that she's either worn weaves or she uses extensions and um, she's even had her hair relatively like short or medium short but this one is is a sense of pride and freedom and just embracing her as her whole self, naked and all, like not having any identity attached to her hair. That's what that symbolises. Mm. Yeah, definitely. But I also think it's interesting now, in, in, not sort of in terms of black culture and how that's kind of, I'm not sure if the right way has been embraced by everybody, but I think even in terms of people that are not black, so white people, I kind of think everything that sort of identifies you as a black person is what people potentially want to look like now just speaking about the um the african influence one thing that i noticed that i didn't i thought all black people were the same but like i said it was it, it wasn't until i went to uni and i had african friends that i i realized that their life experiences are completely different i've, I've got a friend his name's dr assemini now he's maybe he's made his way all the way up to being a doctor but when I told him about my experiences growing up in the UK, he couldn't relate. He, mm -hmm. he, he just didn't get it. There, there was no... He just honestly did, could not relate to the things that I was, I was talking about. And um, I went to Ghana to, to film his wedding, and that's when I realised why he didn't... <laughs> he couldn't relate to me. When I landed in Ghana airport, we had a private helicopter to his house. His... <laughs> He's friends with the president of Ghana. His wedding was like something out of coming to America. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So he couldn't relate to his family are wealthy. So when he came over to the UK as a African student and he's with a load of East London guys in the student halls of residence, this guy was rich and we didn't know it. You know, but I automatically assumed that 
black people we don't we don't really have wealth like that do you know what i mean and and it's not true there's a lot of especially the the africans that have come over they're not building from the ground up like a lot of the caribbeans were they're coming coming over being paid for by their father's businesses that are doing very well in african countries and that was an eye-opener to me it's very true because even us as british black people our experiences well my experience um as a british caribbean woman would be different to an experience of an african british woman same with someone from the caribbean islands that's come over here it's all three different experiences three completely different experiences so and that again goes down to the richness of 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 our culture if you think of it like this i'm I'm raised in a country that not the majority of people look like me. Whereas if I'm coming from, say, Jamaica, everyone looks like me. So equality and diversity doesn't really mean a thing out there. It's just what it is. Like, that's how you live. Whereas over here, you're trying to be included into a country where not the majority of people look like you. So those kind of concepts are foreign to, say, the Caribbean-born individuals that are over here settling in the UK because it's not a concept that they've had to really grow up with. They've just walked out on the street and, you know, they can look around them and see people that look like them. So even for me, I would say I felt more at home living in East London than I did living in Essex. And I lived in Essex the longest. You asked about advice um, for someone battling with identity. Yes. Um, One thing I will give advice for, and I've used this my very, very self, is speak to your family members. Yeah, speak to your family members about your heritage, about your background, about what they did previously as well, because that gives you a sense of identity. Because for me, I can only speak on me. You know, when it comes down to like my parents, they just went to work and they came home and they fed us, and it was a survival thing rather than a compassionate thing. So there wasn't much conversations about what you liked and what you didn't like, your aspirations and all that kind of stuff. All of that does feed into who you are as a person and how they even came here and why they do what they do and why you do what you do. So definitely speak to your family, get as much information so that way you know how and where it fits into you as a person. And like Darren said before, educate yourself because not everything you would resonate with, not everything you identify with, not everything you might agree with as well, but it gives you the ability to be selective with what you take on and what you discard as part of you and not part of you. No, so I suppose I think it's important because I suppose with, with me, I obviously, me personally, I'm black. You know, both my parents are black, but I suppose in terms of my nieces, they are of mixed heritage, um, so they come from a background of black and white. Um, and so I do think, as you're saying, in terms of those stories um, and sort of the things that they learn, you want them to know about black culture and their background and the stories and they're just all really so important that you know they they learn about this but I do as I said I think in terms of information that's out there there's so much information now especially currently presently at this sort of fantastic moment in time you know what I mean where it's, it's, it's maybe not fashionable to say but like being black is popular that it's kind of, that there's all of this information out there that people are willing to take on board and, and yeah, just learning about your culture and, you know, so that people feel 
included and know about their history. Teaching other people about your culture. If you're mixing with white people and they, they're not aware of your culture, they're ignorant to it, that they might judge it. So then if you educate them on that, then they might see a bit more about you and, and you might be able to connect more. And I think a big part of it is documenting because, again, we, we well know that museums get burnt down, places of history get destroyed and the, the narrative gets changed. So if you are taking ownership of your story and it being documented, that then enables you to educate others from your own mouthpiece. Um, I'm a big believer in documenting your own history. I know Darren is very much a big believer in documenting as well because of the line of work that he does outside of power. But yeah, unless you want someone else to tell your story for you, you've got to learn to be vocal. Like I said before, be that first domino to stand up and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm speaking up about something. Document your history. Don't be scared of it. Otherwise, someone else will do it on your behalf. 100%. I was going to say, I feel for me, um, initially, I didn't feel, I didn't, I didn't feel any different to any of my friends growing up. Um, if you look at some of my primary school photos, I was the only black guy in the class. There was a few yep. Asian, there was a few Asian students, but the rest of the, the class was white. But because of the way we grew up, we were all working class. I did race wasn't an issue. It really wasn't. But what I found was I was I wasn't equipped to deal with racism when it did rear its ugly head. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I feel the the sooner you know your knowledge of where you're from and yeah. uh, what what your story really is, then you'll be better prepared and to deal with racism when it comes. You can you can brush it off, you know, um, because you're not you're you're confident within yourself. But if yeah. you don't have that confidence within yourself and you don't know your history, someone can tell you that all you are is a slave or a descendant of a slave and you'll feel so crushed by that that it can really have a, a, a knock-on effect and I feel that that is the reason why a lot of people either end up going down the prison route or mental health institutes because they don't actually feel a sense of belonging and don't know yeah. um, where they are and it literally drives drives them crazy I've seen that happen so many times you know, mm-hmm. so grounding is important. I think it's really important as well to to really know all history. That's what I was saying before. But as well, knowing yourself enables you to deflect the negativity because you know that that is not your truth. And yeah. just being able to say, okay, well, this is actually me. This is my knowledge of me and my people not having someone else educate you on yourself and that's where i think a lot of it comes down to shame of not actually knowing your own history and knowing your own self and i feel that that's where the sense of pride that we're seeing now within a lot of black communities is coming from because social media is there the internet is there now and there's such an influx of information you're your own self-educator so if you're not doing the work then you're, you're, you're selling yourself short, you know? But this is where the sense of pride is coming because there's so much information that can be shared from city to city, country to country, globe, like across the globe, that the, the sense of unity and pride is, is becoming a tenfold experience now because everyone is able to 
see what is being documented, resonate with it, relate to it, and share it with other people. That's where I think the sense of pride is coming from, is the actual taking hold of your own knowledge and knowing thyself. Yeah, thank you. I'd just like to say thank you for joining me and having this conversation. I found it really interesting and hope, hopefully our listeners have too. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ben.